Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. I'll read verses 20 through 23. And it says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate then said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Good morning. It is great to see you this morning, and it is great to be here. What a day and privilege that's ours. Um, it is just great to be among God's people. Great to hear the singing, the praying, and great to study God's word. And certainly it's wonderful to fellowship and encourage one another. I felt better when I got in the building this morning. How about you? Just good to be here, and we're very thankful for your presence and for this privilege that's ours. Our title this morning is The Man Who Couldn't Wash His Hands. The Man Who Couldn't Wash His Hands. We'll get to that momentarily as we work with that thought. Let's understand that the idea of law is a huge part of the Bible. In fact, you might go beyond just law. The idea of justice, a courtroom, the whole scenarios and everything that's involved. There are three periods of law in Scripture. There is the period most frequently known as patriarchy from Adam to Moses and then Mosaic or from Moses to Christ and ultimately Christ to the end of the world. It's the way the Bible outlays itself. It's really significant. Law is and the ideas associated therewith. One of those ideas is justice. God is described as a judge. In fact, Jesus would say the Father judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the Son. The idea that God judges and that Jesus will judge, again, prominent features in Scripture. With that in mind, it would be imperative for us to know that the God of heaven will be fair and just in his judgment, and he will. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, and just for reference sake, that's in the discussion of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And so God tells Abraham what's going to happen to these cities and the surrounding areas. And when Abraham hears it, Abraham makes an impassioned plea for the righteous. And he begins to ask God. And ultimately what Abraham says to God is, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You just want to think about that for just a moment. That's Abraham's question. He's interested and God's executement of judgment. We all understand that. In fact, we would demand the same thing. Even among our human judges, we want justice. If God and man can agree on anything, it's that we, neither of us, likes or tolerates injustice. And when someone stands before a court, they should get a fair hearing based on the evidence presented, and they should get justice. God demands such, as you read throughout the Old Testament, he makes it abundantly clear those judges were not to have preference for the rich over the poor. They were not taken to account who it was, and they certainly were not to take a bribe. They were to be men of justice. Throughout history, though, it happens. It has happened. And some of the cases have been very notable. 
It prompted individuals to study it. A 23-year-long study conducted by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University of Law, released in 2012, documented more than 2,000 cases of the miscarriage of justice during that time. They went on to admit that likely there are many more that have slipped through the cracks. There have been some notable miscarriages of justice. Some of them include an individual by the name of Daryl Burton. Through police coaching and witnessing false police reports and suppression of exonerating witnesses' description, got Daryl Burden convicted of a 1984 murder he didn't commit. He spent 24 years in prison. One witness was shown a picture of Burden and said, you got the wrong man. Then there was Daryl Hunt. He was convicted of rape and murder in 1984, and DNA testing exonerated Hunt in 1994, but he remained imprisoned for the murder until 2003, when another man confessed to both the rape and murder, whose DNA did match the physical evidence. Hunt wasn't cleared and released until 2004. Then there's a Raschetti Four. Named for the victim, Laura Ruschetti, who was raped and murdered in Chicago in 1986. Four teenagers were convicted of the crimes, Omar Sanders, 18, Marcellus Bradford, 17, Larry Olin, 16, and his brother Calvin Olin's 14. Bradford pled guilty via a coerced confession, plea bargain, and was sentenced to 12 years, while the other young men received life sentences. At trial, the prosecution's expert claimed DNA evidence could have come from the Orleans brothers. Later examination of the experts notes by an independent DNA expert demonstrated that none of the young men's blood types matched the evidence. And that was known at the time of the original trial. In 2001, all four were cleared by that DNA evidence. Saunders and the Orleans brothers were finally released after 15 years in prison. Now, everybody who hears these things, well, we're just all moved to the same degree of hurt and pain for the individuals. We don't like miscarriages of justice. And while there have been many, there are none that can compare to the greatest miscarriage of justice in human history, and that is the trial of Jesus Christ. There is so much to focus on in this trial. So many characters and subplots, and at the end of it, so much injustice. We'll focus on the judge who could have prevented it. Don't know what it must have been like for Pilate, maybe one day like every other day, but on this occasion, he woke up, and on the docket today was the state versus Jesus Christ. What happened? The events are recorded for us beginning in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 10. Judas feels remorse for having betrayed the Savior. He comes and throws down the 30 pieces of silver. The individuals involved ask, what is that to us? And so they don't take the money. It's blood money. can't be put into the treasury. They buy a field of blood called the potter's field. Next, Judas, or Jesus, stands before Pilate. That's verse 11 down to verse number 16. And they have an interchange. It's recorded in every gospel account with minor details slightly different and helping us to see and hear different things in this exchange. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot before Pilate. In fact, at some point, Pilate asked him, are you going to say nothing? Do you hear all of the charges that's being levied against you? 
Pilate even goes on one occasion to say to Jesus, do you not know I have power to have you released or to have you killed? Verses 27 to 32, Jesus is scourged. We could spend the hour or, did I say hour? <laughs> we, we could spend the rest of the time talking about scourging. Have you ever heard a preacher talk about scourging and go into detail? Have you ever heard what's actually involved? Reading the Word simply does not do justice. Saying it lightly and moving on does not do justice. It's not our focus, but oh, if it were to appreciate that for Pilate is the lesser degree. He's going to say, I'll just punish him and let him go. He had him scourged. Some people refer to that as the little death. Finally, Jesus is turned over led away to be crucified. Verses 33 to 50, that's the events. That's what happened. Who's involved? There are a lot of people involved. They're the chief priests. They're involved, and they're going to incite the crowd. We'll hear them. They are the elders who are in hand in hand and lockstep with them. Then there's Judas, there's the crowd, there's Pilate, and there are the soldiers. Ultimately, when it was all said and done, Pilate is making the ruling the chief priests and the elders, the crowd, they are the accusers. Jesus is the defendant. All the information has been heard. Both sides have rested their case. And this is Pilate's conclusion, Matthew 27 and verse 24. The Bible says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a riot was made, he took water, he washed his hands, before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Our title this morning is Why Pilate Couldn't Wash His Hands. This is the man that couldn't wash his hands, but why couldn't he? And before we get to the points, let me just offer this. This is a very good example of the intersection between physical and spiritual things and how the Bible uses them both to help us understand things. We know what he did. Physically, at some point, the Bible says, after everything that happened, he took some water and he washed his hands. We understand that. And I'm standing before you telling you he couldn't wash his hands, but he just did. Eric, we just read it. The man went, took some water and washed his hands. Yeah, that's the point. Pilate didn't mean to wash his hands for cleanliness. He wasn't talking about his physical hands, no. Well, how do you know, Eric, you can't read the mind, the man's mind? He went and washed his hands. That's what he did. And you're saying he can't wash his hands. Yeah, that's the point. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. When he washed his hands physically, he expressed something spiritually by that act. For him, the washing of his hands is understood by the announcement that he made. What did he say? He said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Here is what you and I must understand, that physical acts and how they have spiritual meanings. The washing of hands is the physical gesture, yes, but it meant more than the cleanliness of the flesh, see baptism. It's not the cleansing of the body, it's something else. He doesn't mean my hands are clean. He means by this act, I am innocent. When I say Pilate couldn't wash his hands, I mean 
by this physical act, what he pronounced spiritually, he cannot accomplish. This is a man who washed his hands but can't wash his hands. What do you mean? Why couldn't he be innocent? Number one, he is a judge adjudicating a case, and he can't wash his hands and be innocent because he knew Christ's accusers were guilty. He knew that the ones bringing the charge actually needed to be charged. What do you mean he knew? Notice Matthew 27 and verse number 18. In the midst of this backwards and forwards and discussion and all of the things that's being done, heard and said, the Bible says with reference to Pilate, for he knew that they delivered him for envy. He knew it. He understood it. That's what the word means, to see, to perceive with the eyes, to perceive with the senses. He knew their motivation was impure. He knew their hearts were not right. In fact, he knew it so much, he questioned them about it. He went backwards and forwards with them, trying to get them to own it and admit it. You know you're not right. Notice what he says. It's recorded in John's account, John 18, 29, and 30. John says this, so Pilate went outside to them. One of those times where he had been talking to Jesus, and then he went outside to them. And this is what he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, you would think the next words you would hear is the accusation. Well, that's the question. What accusation do you bring against this man? Here's what they say. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Wait, what? That's not an accusation. <laughs> that, that doesn't tell me why you brought him. You're asking me to believe that your motives are pure when I know they're not. I already know you're not right. I already know it. And now I'm asking you, why did you bring him? And the best you have to offer is, if he weren't evil, we wouldn't have brought him. Why can't he wash his hands? He can't be innocent because he knew. He knew they were guilty. Secondly, he knew Christ was innocent. He can't wash his hands because he knew Christ was. Can you imagine a judge? entertaining people who he knows they're wrong, the accusation is wrong, the motivation is wrong, and then he questions them and they have no accusation actually other than if he wasn't wicked, we wouldn't have brought, can you imagine a judge? But then further, can you imagine a judge who knows that and knows the one being accused is innocent? What do you mean he knew it? Look at verse number 19. His wife told him, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. If ever there was a time to listen to your wife. <laughs> this was that time. Somebody say, well, his wife can't tell him how to, okay, I got you. If you want to dismiss his wife telling him that, know this, he knew it too. He knew Christ was innocent. After his examination, that was his conclusion. Luke 23 and verse 22, Luke records, a third time he said to them, 
Why? This is in response to them saying, crucify him, crucify him. He says, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. That's two people. If you want to dismiss his wife, know this. The judge knows he's innocent. You talk about a miscarriage of justice? When the judge knows the people are guilty and the defendant is innocent? Yeah, he knows it. He's not the only one who knew it, though. Pilate was aware of the fact that Herod also thought he was innocent. Again, in Luke's account, chapter 23, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this day they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent them back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Can you imagine the scene in court when everybody involved, to include the judge, knows those making the accusation are wrong, the person being accused is innocent, and he goes forward with his guilt and then says, I wash my hands of the whole. No, sir, you can't wash your hands. Number three, because he would break the law. Now, I know that sounds strange because it seems like he's broken the law 17 times already. But the law in question is the law of sowing and reaping. You see, if he could wash his hands, if he could declare himself innocent, he would violate this law. Pronouncing yourself innocent doesn't make you innocent. He washed his hands and declared himself innocent, but that is not how life works, and he should have known that. I'm certain that he did. He sold one thing. He can't pronounce himself another thing. To do so would be to violate the law of God, the law of sowing and reaping. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 7, and it's not the only place, when God says to us, be not deceived, he's giving us that information to help us because it might be the case that you could be deceived. You could be led astray, manipulated, somehow confused or tricked into believing that such actions that follows this could happen. They can't happen. And so he warns, be not deceived. It's not the only place. There's another one. 1 Corinthians 15, comes to mind. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good morals or manners. Why don't you want us to be deceived? Because... When you're a young person and you hang around people and sometimes your parents say, hey, you can't run with that crowd. You say, well, they're not doing anything wrong. Your parents say, they're doing everything wrong. They pull the wool over your eyes. They've tricked you. You're deceived. And so by the be not deceived, it's not just true of young people. It's true of older people. Sometimes the wrong crowd can affect older people too. What's Paul saying? Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt. They don't improve. They don't bless. They don't benefit. They corrupt. 
good manners. You start out with good manners and morals, you get with the evil communications, the wrong crowd, and they corrupt you. The Bible says don't be deceived. Here it says the same thing with a different focus. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Can you imagine what heaven would be like and feel like if Pilate could know the accusers were guilty, know Jesus was innocent, and then say, I'm going to wash my hands and be innocent. That's not how heaven works. If you want to be innocent, live a pure life. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We talked about how the physical and the spiritual intersect. So for the physical version of this, you'll want to read Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 11. In the first three, four days of creation, God made a law that everything produces after its own kind that the seed is within itself, and that what is sown will be reaped. It's a great law. It works so well. Wouldn't it be horrible if you planted watermelon seeds and wasn't sure what was going to come up? You got okra. No, that's not how it works. If you want okra, you plant okra on purpose. No, it's not something you're just surprised about. The law works. Paul takes that law, transfers to the spiritual realities of life, and says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Spiritually, it works the same way. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If Pilate could figure out a way to wash his hands after this miscarriage of justice, he'd make a mockery of God. He can't do that. He can't wash his hands. He'd violate the law of God. Number four, he can't wash his hands because he miscarried justice. He had an opportunity to do the right thing, and he didn't. In fact, everything that could be done wrong in this case, he did it. He released the guilty and condemned the innocent. The Bible would warn us about this. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 20, woe to him that call it good evil and evil good, that put light for darkness and darkness for light, bitter for sweeter, sweet for bitter. Woe to the individual. He miscalculated. You see, Pilate was doing a lot of thinking during this trial and during this process. He was. He was calculating, trying to figure this thing out. And he thought, he thought that he had figured out a way to get out of this. But he miscalculated. He counted on the unreasonable being reasonable. Notice verse number 15 of chapter, seven, chapter 27. Now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the people one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, there were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. The scripture reveals what Pilate is thinking. So in his mind, he, he has this concept that I'm going to bring out Barabbas. And I'm going to set him next to Jesus. And when I do that, there's no way they want a murderer back in their midst. There's no way they want an insurrectionist back in their midst. They, there's no way they want him back. So he thought, well, I'll just reason. But he was reasoning with the unreasonable. The Bible says in verse 17, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? He thought they were going to be righteous, but they were wicked. He relied on the wicked being righteous. Note their response. Verse number 18 says, for he knew that was his motivation. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. 
He knew that, and so he tried this. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's when his wife sent the message. He thought about it. I'm going to set Barabbas next to him. He knew for envy they delivered him. His wife sends the message. There must be a lot going through his mind, and he's thinking that there's no way. But he miscalculated. No, verse number 20 begins, but, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, well, what then do I do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him. Notice his response to that. Why? You can, you can see his efforts going down. And now he's reached a point where that didn't work. And so he says, why? What evil has he done? Why would we do that? But they kept shouting, crucify him crucify him. And when Pilate saw he could not accomplish anything and there was a riot, he went over, took some water, washed his hands. I'm innocent. He gave in to public fear and pressure. In John's account, as these events are transpiring, in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 12 down to verse number 16, in John's account, they say at some point to Pilate, in the midst of these events, they say to him, if you do this, you are no friend of Caesar's. Because whoever makes himself a king is no friend of Caesar's. Listen, he said he was a king, and if you do this, you're going to have him, and we only have one king, and that's Caesar, and you'll be no friend of Caesar's. And at that point, verse 26, then he released Barabbas for them after having Jesus scourged. He handed him over to be crucified. Don't you love the way the Bible details? You can see the scenes in your mind, can't you? You can see the events playing out. And coincidentally, my first Bible class, um, my first Bible class and sermon here was about John 4. And I think in that I said, you know, you have to turn the diamond to look and see from different angles. You know what we can't talk about for time's sake this morning, but it'd be great if we circled back. Have you heard from our Lord? Yesterday, I, I was over in San Marcos and preached a sermon entitled, Suffer as He Suffered. You know one of the things that stands out about Jesus on trial while all of this is happening is how silent he is. The innocent one is silent. Oh, if we could take the time to turn, but we just can't. We're talking about Pilate. But in the midst of all of this going on, Pilate, the Bible says, he, Pilate, released Barabbas to or for them. He did it. He gave Jesus to them. And he knew. Over and over and over again, he knew. He has the wherewithal to go take some water and say, I'm innocent. You are not. And you can't wash your hands from this. He tried. In fact, the fifth reason he can't wash his hands is because his good works couldn't cleanse him. What do you mean good works? Oh, he tried. He tried some things. 
and I'm not going to be so hard on the man as to not acknowledge on some level they were good works. I, he was trying. He tried to get out of this himself and then Jesus. Note the order. He tried to get himself out of this and then Jesus. How did he try? Number one, he just came flat out to the crowd and said, he's innocent. He told everybody that. I find no guilt in him. Herod finds no guilt in him. I've examined him before you. There's nothing here. Can you imagine a judge saying that? Well, that should be it. He tried that. Didn't work. He sent them to Herod. Get a second opinion. Oh, he's a Galilean. Well, send them over there to Herod. Herod got him. Herod wanted to see him a long time. Wanted to see some miracle. Jesus is not a performer. He's not a performer. He didn't do anything for Herod. Herod was disappointed, but he didn't find any death in him, and so he sent them back. Pilate says to the people, I didn't find anything. Herod didn't find anything. Let's get on from this. They said no. He tried something else. Here, take Barabbas. <laughs> Clearly, this man is wicked. We know that. Where'd you get him? Prison. <laughs> we don't have to wonder about this man. We know what he is. He came from among you as a murderer. We got it. Well, take him. He's trying. In fact, according to Luke's account, he tried several times. Listen to what Luke says, Luke 23, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says, but they all cried together, away with this man, and released us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city for, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Those are inspired words. He's desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he gave up Jesus to them. Listen to John's account. We reference Caesar. That's John 19, beginning in verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts. John's inspired words. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Golbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Did he try? Yeah. When they put the sign above the cross, the, the sign read, Jesus, king of the Jews. The Jews were insulted and they went to Pilate, and they said, don't write that he was the king of the Jews. Say instead, he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate stood resolute. What I've written, I've written. Didn't change the sign. Joseph came and asked for Jesus' body, John 19, 38. Pilate gave it to him. 
Did he try? Absolutely. He tried several things? Absolutely. You gonna call him good? No problem. But know this, he can't wash his hands because his deeds can't cleanse him. His good deeds didn't make him innocent because in the end, he still gave Jesus to them. Let's make some application. What does this mean to me? In the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 records David's events with Bathsheba. You get to the end of that chapter, chapter 11 and verse 27, the Bible says, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. David has violated many laws of God in those interactions and in that action, and so God sent a prophet to David. That's chapter 12. The prophet Nathan arrives, and he tells David a parable. One of the things that parables were to do was to conceal truth for those who didn't want it, but to reveal it for those who were willing to listen to the parable and seek to understand it. It would reveal the truth. And so Nathan says to David, there were two men in a city, and one of the men was very rich. He had exceeding many flocks and herds. That's how the King James describes it. Again, I love the biblical language, exceeding many. Flocks and herds. I mean, if you're confused about how rich this man is, don't be. He had exceeding many flocks and herds. And then there was a second man. And in comparison, the Bible says he had one little ewe lamb. And that lamb was like a child to him. He would nurse it and cherish it, and he held it in his bosom. And we might say treated it like his own child. That's how he loved that lamb. And that rich man with many exceeding flocks and herds had a friend to come visit. And instead of going to his flocks, he went to that man's house. Talk about injustice. And he took that man's little lamb and he killed it. And they ate it. He served it to his friend. David sitting in the position of judgment. When David hears that, the Bible says David was wroth, angry, outraged. And David made a judgment pretty quickly. He said, the man that has done this is worthy of death. But he shall repay fourfold. And then Nathan says, thou art the man. What does that have to do with you this morning? We talked about a man who couldn't wash his hands this morning. We were really talking about you. You are that man. You see, if you have sinned against the God of heaven, then you have sin in your life. And friends, you can't wash your hands. There are three reasons for that, and you need to know them. Number one, you can't pronounce yourself clean either. Pilate couldn't wash his hands and declare his innocence, and neither can you. In fact, the proverb writer asks in Proverbs 20 and verse number 9, who can? Who can say, I've made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Notice the connection between heart and sin. It's not that you can wash your hands and cleanse your heart. You can't physically do that. No, and so the proverb writer says, who can do that? Who can say, I've made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. That's what Pilate attempted. He did all of that evil, took some physical water, washed his hands, and tried to declare his heart clean. You can't do that. He couldn't, and you can't either. The reason is all sin is against God, 
Psalm 51.4, when David, many believe, was writing his repentance, his confession, his understanding of what he had done, his plea to be restored back to God, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Friends, if you have sinned, you've broken the law. Remember the idea of justice and law in a courtroom and a setting, and that's the way the Bible presents it. That's the way the Bible presents sin with humanity, that you and I have sinned against the God of heaven. Notice 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4, where John writes, whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. What would we call one who breaks the law? We'd call him guilty. What do you do, spiritually speaking, the exact same thing? If you sin, you break the law. Please understand, again, the physical and the spiritual and the intersection. We understand it here, much like washing hands. You want to wash your physical hand to be free of germs? Great. But you don't wash your hands physically to be free of sin. You don't wash your hands physically to clean your heart. You don't do that. And so, same way, if you violate the law, you are guilty. Spiritually speaking, if you sin, you transgress God's spiritual law. And if you do that, you're guilty. Now then, how do you get clean? You don't acquit yourself. You don't decide that I'm clean. You don't make pronouncements that's what he did. Friends, you can't do it either. Pronouncements don't determine truth. There are people who have moral sin against the God of heaven, but they pronounce themselves spiritually clean. Can't do that. Sexuality, big conversation in our country and around the world. You can't pronounce yourself clean if you've sexually sinned against God financially, spiritually. It doesn't work in any area of life. Pronouncement doesn't determine or change the truth. You are the man, and you can't pronounce yourself clean. Secondly, your good works can't cleanse you. I mentioned Pilate's attempt at good works. You know, people do the exact same thing. Maybe you've been doing it. The Jews tried. Paul says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, Romans 10, 3, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What happens when you're guilty of sin? You know what people try to do is sometimes they try to cleanse themselves. I've committed sin. I know that. And so what do I do? I'm going to pray. What am I going to do? I'm going to give money to charities. What am I going to do? I'm going to do service projects and help others. I'm going to try to save the planet. I'm going to recycle. I'm going to support causes. I'm going green. But you sinned against God. You're guilty before him. And instead of obedience, what you're trying to do is by your good works, cleanse yourself. And friends, it cannot work. It didn't work for Pilate. It won't work for you. While the exact same time you're doing your own good deeds, you're rejecting the offer of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8, Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. What kind of works? 
these very kinds, the works that originate in your mind, the works that you think that by this I'm going to be acceptable to God. Paul says, not of works. Some people read the word works in the Bible and they dismiss all works. No, it's not all works that's the problem. Now, we're not saved by works, not any of them. We're saved by grace, just like he said. But the very next verse says, for we are created unto Christ Jesus unto good works. Which one? His. What's the good works? The ones that God appoint. John 5, 28, the Jews came to him and said, what must we do to work the works of God? God has works for you to work, but they're not yours. They're his, and you can't. Put his aside, originate your own, and then say, by these, I'm going to be justified. You can't be cleansed by your good works. Some say, well, I don't want religion. No, I don't want God. I just want to be a good person. It's not going to work. That's not going to cleanse you from your sin. I don't want to do anything wrong, and so I try, I try to be good to everyone. Well, that's fine. Law to believe, and I suppose it may make you a very good neighbor, but it won't, it won't save you. It won't cleanse your sins. It won't wash them away. Your goodness to your neighbors won't fix your sin problem with God. Well, I just don't try to do anything wrong to anybody. I just try to be good to everybody. Friends, you can't justify yourself. You can't figure out in your own mind and by your own deeds a way to be right with God. You need him for that. God is the one who justifies. That's the idea between righteousness and justification. It's the idea of God's way of making you right with him. But he's the one who does that. Romans 3, 23 to 26, he is just and the justifier. The one who justifies, the one who says you're all right now, the one who determines that is God, not you. Can you imagine a courtroom where a person who has been charged, found to be guilty, stands before the judge and then tells the judge the terms of his, uh, of his sentence? He stands before the judge and he says, now listen, Your Honor, I've been thinking. I had some time to think in myself. I appreciate the fact that I'm guilty. I got it. Uh, Y'all did a great job. State, all the people did. It's fantastic. However, I've been thinking and I had some time to reflect and I think at this point, with regards to my sentencing, we should just let it go. We should just count it clean. We should just wipe the slate clean. We would think it very strange, even outrageous and illegal, if a judge accepted that. How can you stand before the judge of heaven and earth, sin against him, and be guilty of violating his law, and then you tell him the terms of pardon. And then you tell him how he is going to justify you. Friends, you are the man, and your good works can't cleanse you. Number three, you need the blood of Jesus. It is beyond ironic and exceedingly interesting that Jesus needs to die. And it doesn't in any way exonerate Pilate or the crowd or anybody else. Peter said regarding some of those Jews, you have taken him by wicked hands and crucified him. The wickedness is still wicked, and yet we needed the Christ. And that's the point. You need Jesus. Pilate said, 
Judas said, I betrayed innocent blood. That's the blood you need. You're guilty. He's innocent. Pilate said, I have nothing to do with this just man. He is just, and you need him. And that's why you can't be right without him. In order to be cleansed, you need Jesus. You need the very blood that was shed under all of this injustice. In fact, friends, what you need to know is that was the plan from eternity, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. The blood of Jesus was always God's plan on your behalf, John 1, 29. He's the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And in him, Acts 22, 16, he washes away our sins. If you want to be cleansed, come to Jesus. That's how you get cleansed. John will say he washes us in his blood. Revelation 1 and verse number 5. What a day it must have been. Maybe it started like any other. Pilate woke up and knew at some point the Jews were having some problems and he was going to have to adjudicate them and stand before them and deal with it. What must it have been like for the judge of all the earth to be on trial? The perfect innocent lamb of God brought to the courtroom. And to watch Pilate's behavior as he rejected the information he knew, as he released a murderer to them, as despite his efforts, he miscarried justice over and over and over again, condemning an innocent man, and then turning around, washing his hands and declaring himself innocent. What must it be like today when Christ is in your hands? What will you do? Is he the son of God? Is he the savior of the world? Did he rise from the dead? Is he seated at the right hand of God, ruling heaven and earth? And if so, will you submit to him? Will you come to him and learn of him and take his yoke? Will you obey him? Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's why he's there. Oh, they were so upset that he kept claiming to be God in the flesh, but that's exactly who he was. Read the book of John and listen to John explain it and defend it. Pilate knew it was for envy. Will you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Would you repent, change your heart and your mind? Jesus demands it, Luke 13, 3. Confess his name, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you obey him so that he can then justify you? Or will you reject him? Will you turn and walk away from him as Pilate did, or will you try to wash your hands and declare yourself clean? You know, for some people, the world has become a very challenging and very difficult place. Some people have become so despondent, they have become overwhelmed and overcome by the guilt of sin. 
And to those people, let me say this. If you have sinned, if you agree with everything that's been said and you, you may be thinking in your mind, that's what it is right there. I feel guilty all the time. I feel ashamed of what I've done, my choices, my past. Just beg you, don't give up. Don't give up. You are not hopeless. And the situation is not hopeless. Friends, if you've taken the point from the sermon this morning, please understand this, that ultimately the point is this. The point is not that we can't be cleansed. That's not the point. The point is we can't cleanse ourselves. That's the point. The point is, it's not that there's no hope. The point is, there's no hope in you figuring it out without Jesus. But what if you came to the one who was innocent and on trial? What if you came to Jesus? You know this same Jesus. Not long before he stood before Pilate, he was praying in a garden. And somewhere between praying in the garden and standing before Pilate, they came to arrest him. I'll tell you about Jesus. And when they came to arrest him, somebody among his peers, in his group, Peter took a sword and cut off somebody's ear. I'll tell you about Jesus. You know what he did? He healed the man's ear. And with all of that power to stop this, he didn't stop it. He healed the ear. Asked for his disciples to be let go. Voluntarily walked with them. Stood this trial of hypocrisy and shame. And went all the way to the cross. And after this with Pilate and the crowd was put on that cross. And while there said, Father, forgive them. Friends, there's hope this morning in that very Jesus. You can't wash your hands, but he can. He can cleanse your soul, clear your conscience. You will no longer be guilty before God. We beg you this morning, don't let sin overwhelm you. Don't let guilt embrace you and enfold you. Break free and come to Jesus. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and as we sing.